This Politics Guys episode is part two of a host exchange between the Politics Guys and the 45th podcast, which we put together to introduce our audiences to each other. Now, after I recorded and initially posted this episode, I realized I forgot to do two pretty important things. First was to welcome listeners of the 45th to the Politics Guys. So, um, 45th listeners, welcome. I hope you like what you hear. Second, I neglected to mention that today's show is a departure from our usual format. My co-host today, Susan from the 45th, is left of center, and so am I, though I'd say I'm to the right of her. The Politics Guys is premised on a belief in the importance of constructive civil dialogue between the left and the right, and so ideally Trey, who's our conservative libertarian political scientist host, would have been here instead of me. Now, the schedule didn't work out that way, but in retrospect, even though I thoroughly enjoyed talking with Susan and I feel like we had a great discussion, it would have been really more in keeping with the spirit of the show had I arranged for Trey to co-host with her. Finally, uh, longtime listeners know that every once in a while when I take a week off, we have a Trey J show, which means that the liberal side of things isn't represented. Now, I'm working on bringing in a regular left-of-center co-host to come on the show when I'm away so that we can maintain our bipartisan approach. I expect that to happen very soon, and when it does, I hope you'll let me know what you think. Thanks. And now, on to the show. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Now, regular listeners might recall that a little while ago, I was a guest on the 45th podcast as part of one of a host exchange that we're doing with them. Well, this is part two, and I'm pleased to welcome the 45th's Susan Simpson as my co-host today. Welcome, Susan. Hi. Good to be talking to you again. Yeah, great to great to have you here. And if you are ready, we'll just jump right into it. Go for it. All right. Well, we opened this week with yet another Trump administration shakeup. Now, this time it was the ousting of Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin. Shulkin had come under fire for excessive travel spending, which seems to me to be something of a theme in the Trump administration. But more importantly, his moderate stance on VA privatization put him at odds with many Republicans who feel that privatization might be the best answer for the long waits and other service complaints that have really plagued the agency in recent years. Now, the move to replace Shulkin was expected, but President Trump's pick to run the VA, uh, came as well a surprise to almost everyone. He's presidential physician Ronnie Jackson, who's a well-respected Navy admiral, and he served as White House physician in the last several administrations. But his policy views are largely unknown, and he has very little managerial experience, something that even some Republicans say may be a problem for someone who would be in charge of the second largest government agency with a budget of $186 billion and around 360,000 employees. Uh, So, Susan, what do you make of this? Well, To go back to the theme you're pointing out there, I was just trying to do a mental run through of everyone in the cabinet who has not had a travel scandal. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a pretty small list. And like the head of it is like Betsy DeVos because she's the richest and has her own private plane. So, I mean, she has no need to spend taxpayer money. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, exactly. And I think Elaine Chow probably also hasn't had any. And that's, you know, McConnell's wife. And then Carson has only had like what? 
tableware scandals. Yeah, yeah. So but, there's a excessive spending. If we expand it into that, certainly the cabinet, there's a huge excessive spending of taxpayer money issue. So looking at that, it's a little bit hard to square Shulkin's firing thing related to his his for real serious uh, spending scandals of his own, because it doesn't seem like that's a you know. A kind of a deal breaker in the Trump cabinet. Yeah, no, that that's a good point. I think. Yeah, I I agree that it's the VA privatization issue that's really that that's really a problem. He's definitely not in line with what I think the administration would like to see on that. And of course, his replacement raises a lot of questions. Um, and you know, in any other universe, in any other presidency, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's really hard not to see a connection between the report on Trump's health that Jackson gave and this offer for him to be head of the the VA. Yeah, he, well, and of course, that's where Jackson at least got, came into public consciousness for issuing that, that report, basically saying <laughs> that the president, while he could stand to lose a few pounds, was just a, essentially, just a, a few. yeah, uh, he's a genetic marvel, uh, basically, <laughs> given what we know about his exercise habits, which are nil, and his diet, which is just which is atrocious, certainly, uh, and that he could, I think, I think he said he could, you know, live to be 200 if he ate right and exercised, which is an interesting thought there. But he uh, has the best genes. It was a bizarre, unprofessional, and it felt like the same report he got from his private doctor, who was somehow even creepier. Um, it was not normal. And this guy is someone who is respected in his profession. You know, he's not known for being a crank or anything like that. And yet he gets this bizarre report that just on the face of it, you're like, wait, really? Those are words any doctor would use, a little doctor for the president. But it all kind of fits together. I mean, everyone knows if you're around Trump and you flatter him and praise him and act like a sycophant, good things come your way. And Jackson must have known that he could cash in on that later. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I would personally take it that far, but I certainly agree with you on the point that Donald Trump seems to pick people who don't necessarily have any actual, you know, experience, but people who he likes and what that translates into are, it seems to me more often than not, are people who will fiercely defend him and say wonderful things about him. And to me, that's the deeper concern is when you see a president surround himself with yes people, with people who won't challenge his worldview in any way. And we've seen more and more of that in this administration. That to me is a huge red flag. And we're seeing an awful lot of that very quickly in the Trump administration. Yeah. Being willing to sell your dignity for a cheap price to him is the biggest uh, qualification you can have as far as Trump's concerned. It helps if you go on Fox News and say a lot of flattering <laughs> things. And, you know, I, and if you're good at it. Yeah, it helps to be good at it, certainly. Uh, you know, and on to the V. As for the VA privatization issue, just for, for folks who don't know, essentially the VA has huge problems with long wait times, with service quality things. And what a lot of conservatives are saying is the problem is that it is this essentially government-run system where they hire the doctors and the medical professionals and they have separate facilities. And what they want to see happen is allow a lot more people who are getting care from the VA to be able to go to private uh, private providers, in some cases even maybe giving them their own private insurance, and that way they can the system would essentially be a lot more flexible and meet their needs. And, and what they'll point out in many cases is that if you look at where, when the VA system was set up in, in, big, in large part after World War II, and you see where a lot of the facilities are concentrated and so forth, it's not necessarily where a lot of our veterans are. And so you see these shortages of doctors and, and you see 
see shortages of facilities. And so it's a really big problem. And to a lot of conservatives, the answer is privatization. I don't, do you have any thoughts on that, Susan? Yeah, as a matter of policy, I'm definitely not a hard line against uh, suggestions of at least change and par- partial privatization for the VA. Because um, the VA is such a great example of how government administration has not worked. Um, that's not to say it couldn't work. But in this case, this agency, it's been so chronically mismanaged that it's a, you know, it's hard to argue that there's better ways out there in the private market. Um, Long term, that has its own consequences. But at least as an immediate matter, and by immediate, I mean like 10 year time frames here, it's it's hard to see how the VA is going to turn stuff around. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly agree. And, you know, one of the one of the problems here is that if you take a look at salaries for VA physicians and nurses, they tend to be considerably lower than what they can get in the in, in the private sector. And so to, to some people are arguing against privatization, saying, well, the problem is largely one of not paying competitive salaries. And if you don't pay competitive salaries, you can't expect to attract a lot of people. And if you have those shortages, of course, there are going to be weights and things like that. And so, you know, I think that's a reasonable point. And it's just so big at this point, trying to reform it. Um, Yeah, I I feel like this is a very, very complicated policy area that sort of knee-jerk, higher-level standard answers isn't going to fix. But I would not necessarily rule out privatization in some form just because it needs to be fixed and we're not finding solutions as it is. Yeah, I I certainly agree with that. And I don't really see, uh, especially Republicans, being willing to pump a lot more money into the VA system to increase uh, salaries and things like that. So I expect that's what we're going to see uh, a bit more of. And now, as for— Of course, there is one possible solution. What's that? Single payer. Oh, well, you know, you, you and I, I think, probably would be very much in agreement on that. That's sort of a world that I would love to see, uh, unfortunately. It would fix the VA's problems. You know, it really degree. would, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, sadly, somehow I don't see that in our near-term future. So um, one thing I will mention is it'll be interesting to see uh, whether or not Republicans really push Jackson in confirmation hearings on his ability to lead the VA during what, you know, may be a pretty big transitional period. Uh, my, I guess the one ray of hope I have, because I expect that he'll probably get confirmed, uh, though I think it might be pretty close given there are only 51 Republicans in the Senate, so who knows. Um, but one one ray of hope maybe is that oftentimes when you have a, a secretary of a cabinet department who might not really know the ropes, a lot of the heavy lifting is done by the undersecretaries and assistant secretaries and so forth. So, it's not necessarily that things would fall apart if Jackson, who may be a very good guy, just is not up for the job. But of course, that is far from an ideal situation. That's what I don't get too. Like, why would you want that job? I, it seems like a yeah. nightmare to me. I can't imagine. Like, I would, I would scream and crawl into a, a, a corner and never come out if yeah. I was forced to be the head of an agency I had no interest in or no experience. Yeah, with. I, I, I totally agree. Now, I heard uh, initial reports said that he was reluctant to take the job, but the president convinced him to do that. I don't know. It, <laughs> That would take a lot of convincing, I would think. Maybe he's you know, maybe, maybe President Trump is a lot more uh, is a lot better at closing that particular deal than, than he is in some others. So, so yeah, it just feels like a raw power grab. Like the, your your primary interest has to be in having power to want that job. Yeah, yeah you gotta wonder what. Yeah, I think you're right. What the what the motivation could possibly. 
the especially when it seems like you're really set up for failure. So yeah, I don't know. It's like Carson. Why would Carson want the head? Like why, why would he want housing? Like why do he want secretary of that unless he just really wanted power somewhere? It wasn't that particular about where it was. Yeah, that that really kind of makes me scratch my. I guess maybe if you take that sort of job, then uh, it helps your status as a as a Fox News rather commentator when you you know because then you're the former secretary of something or other, and maybe that helps with your book sales and other things like that <laughs> afterward. And and you know that. So that, wait, so cabinet position is all a long play for a Fox commentator job? Exactly. You know, it's just a different. It's a different version of the revolving door. It used to be between the lobbying groups and and, and DC, but now it's between you know the the networks and these these power positions. And I think there's something to that certainly. All right. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about the census. Early this That's week. Time of year. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, well, the Commerce Department, of course, early this week announced that the 2020 census would include a question about citizenship status. Now, the question will be added at the request of the Justice Department, which says that citizenship data will help it ensure that the Voting Rights Act is being properly enforced. Now, a citizenship, a citizenship question was on the mandatory form until 1950, after which it was moved to the long form, which only goes out to a small minority of households in, in the census. However, there is a citizenship question in the American Community Survey, which is a yearly statistical sampling of population that's also done by the Census Bureau. Now, many people on the left argue that even though the Census Bureau is legally prohibited from sharing its data with other government agencies, many immigrants may not realize this or may not trust the Census Bureau to share to not share their data, and as a result, they'll evade census takers and thereby not be counted. And the effect of any undercounting would be certainly most strongly felt in areas with large immigrant populations, which typically support Democrats. And the new question could also enable states to redistrict their state legislative and possibly even their congressional districts based on the number of citizens as opposed to total population. And that's also a move that would almost certainly hurt Democrats. In response to this, over a dozen states led by California are suing to prevent the citizenship question from being added, arguing that its inclusion will hinder the ability of the Census Bureau to make a full and accurate count of the U.S. population as it is legally required to do. Uh, How big of a deal would you say this is, Susan? This is not my area. I don't know about proper methodologies or sampling and polling. Um, but the people who do seem to know about it all seem very concerned, and that's enough for me to have concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sort I guess I would say the Trump administration's argument that, well, there should be, there are protections in place, and they haven't been breached, though they were breached, by the way, in World War II to help round up the uh, Japanese and inter them and so forth, but maybe that's something that we want to Forget certainly a lot of people want to forget that uh, sad, sad uh, area of U.S. history. Uh, but there are these protections in place, and they can point to big public relations campaigns before the last census that they say were effective in helping uh, to kind of make immigrants not feel that they would be uh, targeted. This information would be used. But the truth of the matter is, as I see it, is that given the sort of uh, all of the actions that the Trump administration has taken in regards to immigrants, that immigrants have are understandably skeptical. If some some representative of the federal government comes to them and starts asking them questions about their immigration status, 
of course, that's going to be a problem. And it was a whole different thing in 2010 when the federal government was represented by Barack Obama, who was certainly a lot friendlier to the idea of immigration and, you know, cracking down and that sort of thing. So I think it's a legitimate concern. I think this idea that the Justice Department is concerned about proper enforcement of the Voting Rights Act is essentially, well, it's ludicrous, given that the Justice Department doesn't really seem to care about the the Voting Rights Act in in various other ways. Uh, It's a cover. Uh, It's a way to try to stack the deck, I feel, against Democrats. And I don't, I guess I'll say I am very hesitant to throw around the label racist, Uh, but I will say certainly this is something that is 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 to the political advantage of Republicans. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a Republican administration and a Republican Justice Department are pushing for a move on the census that if it has any positive benefit at all, it's going to be a positive benefit that will accrue to Republicans. Now, is that just coincidence? I don't think so, especially since we have good data from the American Community Survey on uh, the uh, uh, immigrant population citizenship, sorry, citizenship status of people. So this, again, I think is just a, another move. I, I, some call it racist. I won't go that far, but I will say it's just sort of a very clear political calculation in my view. It's also not just Republican, though. It's the people behind it, the real motivation behind it or the real interests that serve behind it isn't really a left-right divide as much as it is an ethno-nationalist state Mm, opponent versus everyone else divide. Because it's not just about votes. It's not just about, you know, it's a huge part about that, the allocation of, like, you know, uh, representatives and all that. But it's also about services that go out and people who get, uh, communities that get services and, like, allocating it based on actual need and actual presence. I mean, they complain that the VA is not well-serving its constituents because it's not you know, allocated properly. Well, this is what they're trying to do on purpose here. Um, and for anyone who doubts what the actual purpose of the question is, I think you just have to look at the public statements of the proponents, um, where they're pretty much all saying the quiet part out loud about how, you know, maybe like non-citizens shouldn't be participating. When, of course, the whole point is it's all people. Like constitutionally, um, practically, but the point is count everyone. It's not about counting citizen versus non-citizen. It is to count everyone who is living here. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, we, and we talked about this on, on the show before. It's certainly for a lot of these, a lot of these folks who are deeply unsettled by the, the, the rise of immigration in the United States, their world has changed. Uh, it used to be a world of, uh, well, you know, the, the phrase white privilege, actually, you know, white male privilege definitely fits and their world is changing. Uh, and in part, that has to do with changes to immigration policy that started in the 60s and that we really started to feel in the starting in the late 70s and 80s and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, so that the same sort of people who say, what is this push one for English, push two for Spanish sort of thing? And and they're they're scared. They're worried. The world that they knew is going away and, and that happens and they are reacting against it. And so I guess I would say on a psychological level, I understand it, but that doesn't mean that I'm okay with it because, yes, the world's changing, and I'd say that's a very good thing. Well, it was changing, but now they can look at the government and just see a sea of old white men. So I'm sure that's comforting to a lot of them. I mean, it, it's really remarkable to look at pictures of the government now, and you're like, it's all white dude, old white dudes. It's This is not who America is. It's not remote. It looks like... A very intent. It is an intentional selection, but it's so obvious when you look at it. You're like, how is anyone seeing this and thinking, oh, this is a normal, non-racist state? Because you cannot 
choose a government that has this makeup unless you are selecting for very, very particular factors. Yeah, and certainly we've seen some of those pictures of uh, various Republican groups and interns and things like that and, and compared to Democrats, and it's really a... It's really well, a there's women in the intern photos. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's true. Good point. Good point. But it is it is definitely a sea of white in many, many of those uh, things for, for, for certain on the Republican side. All right. Well, you know, let's move on to international politics. Big news this week. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un left his country for the first time this week, meeting also with his first fellow head of state, uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, in Beijing, China. It was also announced that Kim will be meeting with South Korean leader Moon Jae-in sometime in April prior to his meeting with U.S. President Donald Trump this May. Now, Wait, they have a date? Yeah. They've actually confirmed, really? I don't think there's a date that's set, but wait, it's sometime in May. And, you know, who knows what could happen, right? Because these things could certainly change. The North Koreans have pulled out of things before. That's for sure. If I had to bet, it won't happen. You know, I I almost kind of hope you're right about that kind of the idea of those two at the table sort of scares me uh, a little bit what might happen. But, you know, I have to say, there are a lot of conservatives that are saying this is a direct result of President Trump's tough stance on North Korea. And, you know, right, there have been three rounds of sanctions on North Korea since President Trump took office. And, you know, certainly this decidedly, I guess you call it more bellicose rhetoric compared to the Obama administration, as well as the recent appointment of John Bolton as National Security Advisor, you know, someone who... Bolton is someone who's actually suggested that a first strike against North Korea might be the only viable way to denuclearize the country. And, you know, President Trump has claimed from the beginning that we needed a new strategy for North Korea. And to some people, especially on the right, it seems like he put in place a new strategy. And this new approach seems to be shaking things up and maybe being close to paying dividends. Uh, what do you think? Do you, do you agree with the, the new kind of harder line strategy? There's no strategy. Breaking things and turning things around, making chaotic and wild swings is not a strategy. To have a strategy, there has to be at least an idea or a theory behind it beyond saying, I'm going to do a lot of random stuff and whatever happens, I'm going to call it a win and claim responsibility for it. Like There is not a coherent strategy beyond chaos, beyond uncertainty. And an argument, I guess, could be made that, I mean, yes, chaos can be part of strategy, but it's hard to see what that is here. It's more like he's just shaking things up seeing what happens and then exploiting it. There's no bigger picture here. And when you're dealing with two nuclear powers, that's a really scary way of approaching things. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm going to do something very weird. Listeners, are, yes, I, I am actually saying this. I'm actually going to sort of defend the president here. It's weird coming out of my mouth. Um, but I think in broadly speaking that President Trump doesn't have much of a strategy in many areas, but here, and to what extent is getting tough a strategy, is ratcheting up sanctions a strategy? I, I think it actually is, but but I will say that I think this probably would have happened under, to a certain extent, under any administration, given the provocations of the North and all the nuclear testing that they've done over the last year or so. And I think any administration would have done that. I think it's the sanctions that are starting to bite. I also think it's possible that Kim is coming to the table because he feels like, well, I'm set, at least to a certain extent. We have the ability, we've shown the ability to project nuclear power, and we don't necessarily need to do more tests. I certainly wouldn't trust him. Uh, but then again, I think, you know, to what extent are are the North Koreans afraid that President Trump is just sort of 
crazy enough, as they might say it, to do something radical and start a start a conflict that they certainly would never win. I don't know to what extent is John Bolton part of that. That's certainly hard to say. But to a certain extent, I think getting tough makes sense. But also, I think it would have happened under a Democratic administration as well. But is it, he's not getting tough necessarily. He is in parts, but that's one part of this whole thing that's going on. He is also doing something I think no other administration would have done, which is handing over the huge concession of a meeting, yeah. like yeah. a leader-to-leader meeting, for nothing. That's like, that's like a huge card that we held, and Trump's just like throwing it out there for like a one-minute soundbite on the evening news like channel. Like, yeah. Now that that's an excellent point, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. It's one thing to to say, well, we'd be open to meetings since you offered, but as a precondition, you need to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that that is that is a, definitely a big a big loss, giving away something for nothing, which is really surprising. One would think, given that the president has this self-professed reputation as a really tough uh, America first deal maker. So, yeah, that's a great point. And on the other hand, uh, if you have an opponent who is believably crazy and might do something that could destroy millions of people, um, that will motivate your actions. Yeah, yeah. And that will cause you to act. So, yes, I do believe North Korea is taking actions based on a very likely reality that Trump would do something like that. But calling that a beneficial strategy. Like, yes, you made North Korea do something by taking a risk that you have no right to make and that is not in any way conceivable beneficial to the world. Um, I believe that Trump is absolutely gunning for a, a either a bloody nose strike or a bloody nose strike that's actually a cover for a bigger strike. I mean, he chose Bolton. The goal is regime change. That is his ultimate goal. He does not actually want to be friendly with North Korea. The goal here is to destroy Kim, destroy North Korea, do whatever they think is going to come next. Um, and if he needs to like be friendly for a bit, I'm sure he's capable of that. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope you're wrong. About, I do too. I do too. About that. <laughs> but I think you're actually, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if your prediction that there won't be a meeting, uh, comes out. And I don't know that necessarily, a like I said, a bad thing, because given that president Trump, as you pointed out, has already given away something for nothing. And given the fact that it seems to me that he has a distressing uh, proclivity to get rolled by foreign leaders who are able to say flattering things to him. Now, I don't know if actually Kim would be able I to don't do, know that. If Kim would do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so there you go. But I, I don't uh, I don't know that much good could come out of a meeting unless a lot of groundwork has been prepared and so forth. And given that this was planned for May I didn't really see that we're able to, especially with the shakeup and especially the fact that, you know, the, the Trump State Department has basically been cut to the bone. And, you know, we don't even have an ambassador to South Korea, which seems to me to be kind of a big issue uh, at this point. But uh, I don't hold out a lot of hope, but I do still hold out hope that we won't actually go to war with North Korea. And I'm predicting that we won't. I'll be very optimistic here. Yeah, you know, I, I would definitely war is not a foregone conclusion by any means. I think we're that is not the the likelier possibility, but it is one that's disturbingly large. Um, and the worst case scenario everyone's talking about is like if this meeting happens, if it goes bad and Trump's embarrassed, he'll react as an excuse like you know what we tried talking, let's go for the war. Um, so that that's I think it's a very likely outcome because uh, Kim's way of dealing with stuff is often to use ridiculous bellicose lot like you know to be insulting and to be crazy like whatever and usually no one cares because like hey tuesday now north korea is <laughs> announcing that like yeah the pig dog leader of the imbeciles has done something but 
if Trump, who's gone on a limb here, gets embarrassed by this, if Kim does something that's some kind of stupid power play to like humiliate Trump as he sees it, yes, he could react horribly. Um, my one hope though is that the last time, like, you know, going back a ways to Bush, uh, when Bolton got involved, North Korea was like, okay, no meetings now, we're done. Like, we're going to pull back from all our outreach because Bolton is, is a no-go. So maybe that rule's still in place, and that will save us. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that that logic of what President Trump does when he feels insulted or belittled and so forth, and that does sort of follow based on what we've seen of his behavior, though we would hope that he would not drag us into a war to uh, to soothe his bruised ego, certainly. Um, let's, Why else we go to war? Let's hope not. Yeah, well, yeah, let's hope not. That's, that's, that'll be the ultimate cause of war if it happens. Oh, God. Whoever it's with. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, you know, an important story that we didn't get to on the show last week, it happened right after we recorded on Saturday, was the multi-city March for Our Lives, a mass protest for firearm regulation in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in February. You know, Ralph, Rallies of various sizes took place in 390 of the 435 congressional districts in the United States, with the primary focus being on Washington, D.C., where around 180,000 people gathered. And then later in the week, former Supreme Court justice and liberal icon John Paul Stevens, writing in the New York Times, called for the Second Amendment to be repealed. Um, so, Susan, I thought we'd start with the protest and the reaction to them, especially on the right and the chances that they'll lead to any meaningful action, and then maybe move on to Justice Stevens's call for the Second Amendment to be re- repealed. So what, what did you think about the protests? So, so I actually was uh, not in D.C. that weekend. I was at the Innocence Conference down in Memphis and did not participate like I would have if I was still back here. Um, so I was just watching from abroad on my phone, basically. Um, but I think it was a really important step a very initial step and we'll see where it goes from here but i think it's a suggestion and i think what probably the biggest impact it'll have is there's a lot of kids out there who are going to remember it and make that part of their early political identity yeah yeah no i i definitely agree you know i know some on the right and and actually uh Jay and I will talk. We'll be talking about this a little bit on on our uh, midweek show. That you know, the, on the right, they're calling it sort of pointless virtue signaling and that sort of thing. But but I, you know, I disagree. And certainly, there there may be some people who are doing that. But I, I see it as as you do as as a very positive thing. As these kids sort of standing up and saying, you know, enough is enough, and trying to take action to be heard. And I think this is the democratic process at its best. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, obviously the criticism is like, what's it going to do? Well, who knows? That's the whole point. You're trying to do something now. Um, and the fact you haven't achieved it yet is not a reason to stop trying. No. And, and you know, it's fair to say that, yeah, it, there, it, it's a long way from having a protest, actually something being happened. But you do have to start somewhere. And I think uh, this is a this is a pretty good start, especially given what we've seen and reactions to past mass shootings where essentially we didn't see anything like this and we didn't see any kind of action like this, but we're finally starting to see at least a little bit of movement. And that is to me a very encouraging sign. And I, I love what these kids are doing and I think it's a great thing and I urge them to keep on doing it. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bit later for it to happen. I would have expected because we've definitely been in the wired world for long enough now, Yeah, but maybe it's just the media standards were against publishing it. But I think showing those videos as horrific as they are, from the yeah. shooting sites, I think there's value in that. And yes, it's horrible. And there's arguments for like not putting these kids through more trauma. But with if we're censoring reality in the name of decency, that's also affecting our political debate right now. 
You know, that's I think that's a great point. And it reminded me of, you know, the, sort of the, the video footage that Americans saw of uh, civil rights abuses in the South, you know, uh, turning dogs and water cannons on people and so forth. And that sort of thing that really, I think, you know, struck a lot of Americans who maybe you've heard about those things, but when you actually see those sort of things, that's a, that's a whole different feeling. And so I, I agree with you. While I understand the, the arguments against that, you know, maybe, maybe there is really a positive aspect to that. And maybe it's kind of helping move the debate forward in a way that I think is, is going to be very helpful, certainly. Uh, what about Justice Stevens' suggestion that really it's time for us to revisit and maybe even repeal the Second Amendment? Well, what's your take on that? He's a private citizen now, and that's his belief and opinion. And I think it's great that he we're at a point where he can say that. Um, and I think it's a very valid political opinion. It's probably not realistic at the stage in our democracy, but there's nothing against promoting, like you know, somewhat uh, what's the word? Not idealistic, but uh, aspirational um, policy ideas. And that's what he's doing here. And great, we need people who have all the full spectrum of beliefs out there that are within mainstream America to like put it out there so we know what we're talking about. There's no rule against giving aspirational policy ideas. Yeah, I I certainly agree that, you know, he it may be a very real aspiration of his, but I when I saw that, I when I saw that uh, op-ed, I was I was so disheartened. Um I, and I certainly am for stronger and this is this this phrase i know people on the right drive them crazy but i don't care it common sense gun regulations but but the thing is is all of the gun regulations that anyone is pretty pretty much anyone's proposing can be done within the context of the uh of the second uh, amendment essentially i mean if you take a look at dc's gun laws, which are incredibly strict. Assault weapons are banned, magazines with capacity over 10 rounds, no open carry, background checks are required for private sales, all weapons have to be registered with the police department, registration uh, depends on a successful background check and an online training course, a 10-day waiting period to buy a gun and a 30-day waiting period to buy any additional gun. This is some seriously, I mean, far more draconian than what most people are proposing. And all of that is okay under the Second Amendment. So we don't need to do anything to the Second Amendment. And the problem is, is that kind of repeal the Second Amendment is sort of a rallying call to the NRA. And and so I think I I certainly agree that Justice Stevens's motives are are good and, and understandable. And but I think from a practical standpoint, he did a lot to actually hurt the cause that he hopes to help. And that's why I was so very disappointed by that. I would argue the legal atmosphere is a little more complicated than that. Okay. Um, there, it's not quite as I think. There's definitely moves that. I'm not in faith. Like I would not personally. I mean, it, it depends. There's one hand you have ba- like repealing Second Amendment, and the other you have like banning guns. They're not synonymous. You can have one without the other. Um, Second Amendment makes it very hard from a legal perspective to put in a like a robust framework. Um, and I think as an attorney and as Justice Stevens is an attorney, I think from that viewpoint, the most effective way of putting in a legal landscape that would be effective would be to repeal it. Um, and of course, that does get heard as banning guns or things like that, which is, it's not the case. Um, but from a purely policy uh, world, we're trying to write common sense gun laws. Yes, it would help. And there's always going to be issues with Second Amendment if you're trying to do things like in D.C. There's always challenges to D.C. laws. They lose sometimes. Um, and yes, of course, it's like, you know, raving, waving a red cape in front of the NRA, but that's okay by me. I think that we shouldn't be 
making our opinions, making our policies based on, oh gosh, let's not piss off the NRA. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that part. I guess the part where where I would would it's take. Strategic, I know it, it's a matter of strategy. It may be have some short term consequences, yeah. but I don't think that's necessarily a reason not to ever uh, engage in that kind of uh, you know arguments. And again, I don't think we're really in a place to. It's not going to happen. So yeah, as a matter of short term strategy, it's probably not going to do much. But I think putting the ideas out there and letting people know that it's part of the debate has value in itself. Yeah. You know, one final thing before we move on, I wanted to point out, I forgot to mention about the rally. You know, of course, while this was going on in D.C., President Trump was at his uh, uh, Trump International Golf Club there in Florida. And it occurred to me that, you know, in the beginning of this debate, uh, that when President Trump brought members of Congress together and said, you know, you all are petrified by the NRA, not me, (laughs) I can speak out in... What a wasted opportunity. I mean, President Trump could have stayed in town, could have addressed the crowd, could have said, you know what, I'm not petrified of the NRA and I'm for whatever he happens to be for today. I don't know. But but wow, this but was. He is. Well, yeah, well, yeah, maybe he is actually. <laughs> but but certainly it was it was an opportunity to lead. And he just decided he would rather be at his golf resort. And I, I don't think whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you got to you got to say that that that. Just not taking that opportunity to lead, that's, that's disappointing, I would think, you know? So anyway, not, not really surprising. I don't really think that President Trump is much of a leader, but there you go. All right. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, Jay and I talked about on the show the possibility of a second Cold War between the United States and Russia. And it's become even more of a topic of conversation this week in the wake of dozens of countries expelling more than 100 Russian diplomats. And the U.S., led the way by expelling 60 and closing the Russian consulate in Seattle, which is said to be a hub of Russian intelligence operations on U.S. soil. Now, this is in reaction to the poisoning of a former Russian agent in the U.K., which was allegedly conducted by the Russian government, though, of course, the Russians deny involvement. Now, later in the week, the Russians retaliated by expelling 60 American diplomats and closing the U.S. consulate in St. Petersburg, which is Russia's second largest city. And some on the right point to all this as evidence that President Trump is in no way beholden to or afraid to take action against Russia, and they say this strengthens the president's regularly regularly repeated claim that there was no collusion between his campaign and Russia. And they argue that, you know, while President Trump, of course, wants better relations with the Russians, he puts America first and he won't hesitate to act to protect U.S. interests if Russia or any other foreign power, for that matter, threatens those interests. Um, what do you think about that argument, Susan? I'm guessing you probably don't buy it. I would just love to see, like, you know what? Let's let's put Trump on, on camera. Let's see if he can say one bad word about Putin. He really hasn't. Like, yeah, certainly. He can't, like, he physically isn't capable of it. And why? Like, just, just one time, one point, I want him to, like, go on camera, and he's forced to, like, not a gunpoint, but metaphorically, you know, media gunpoint, say something bad about Putin. See if he could do it. He couldn't. He would not. Um, yes, there is actions being taken against Russia right now, um, but also these are power. This was largely beyond his control. Uh, it reached a point where he did not really have the ability, um, practically, to not do something. Um, they could have done less, and they took a sort of medium route, um, which may show the limits of Russia's ability to coerce cooperation. But it doesn't show anything is not amiss with the Russia-U.S. relationship. As for the Cold War, I don't think that's likely because to have a Cold War, you need two roughly equal opposing forces. And we don't have that. 
And we're not going to have that. So whatever it's going to be now, it's not going to be a cold war. It's going to be some kind of like cyber guerrilla war. Which could be even worse. I mean, I mean, yes. yeah, I mean <laughs> given given what we know about this, yeah, sort of thing. You know, I there's another argument out there as well. And some people would say, well, yes, he hasn't said bad things about Putin, but that's because it's sort of, this is sort of a two-pronged strategy. And one is that it's important to maintain cordial personal relationships with powerful foreign leaders to leave the uh, window open to compromise and so forth. But that doesn't mean that we won't take action against the government, but we don't want to personalize that sort of thing. I mean, do you think- That only applies to Putin though. Like why, why wouldn't that apply to every other government? Like it, it's only Putin. He does this. He can be mean and nasty and then turn on a dime and be nice and opening to every other leader. But Putin's only only one strategy always. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think you're right about that. And I think um, certainly given the president's uh, proclivity to ins to use personal insults, uh, sometimes to his own detriment uh, as, as sort of a, a manner of communicating and, and so forth. And and I'm thinking here particularly about, you know, insulting John McCain, which led to the, the demise, the non-demise of the Affordable Care Act. And whoops, there's a strategic blunder for you if you're if you're President Trump. But yeah, I don't really buy into that either. My sense of things is that whether there's collusion or not, President Trump is just uh, constitutionally incapable of backing down when he's pushed. And so he's pushed on the Russia thing and he just cannot he cannot uh, react in a what we would consider a rational way. It's just not in him. Because but it is rational. It is rational that he has a strategy that he employs. And that's not Trump like it is very Trump like to have a consistent single method of operating that you stick to across years. That's can you think of anything else he's shown that kind of like dedication and like consistency with? Yeah, yeah, aside from his aside from his sort of uh non-favorable to immigrant and trade views, I mean most everything else, no, it's pretty much all over the map certainly. So, well, let me ask you, why do you think it is that he's so reluctant to personally criticize uh President Putin? Because they have something on him and he knows it. You think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no way they don't. And I'm not talking about PP tape. I'm talking about like economic deals here. Yeah, you know, and certainly I that 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 certainly would fit with. I mean, that, that would make sense. Certainly. I, I mean, I obviously we don't have any smoking gun evidence and who knows what the what the Mueller campaign has. I'm sorry, the Mueller investigation is, is uh, going to uncover. Uh, my, my guess on that is that there probably will be some evidence of lower level Trump people, but I'm betting that there's probably not going to be anything that's going to connect the president himself, just because I would think that he was smart enough to have a number of cutouts between himself and that, even if he did have knowledge of that sort of thing. Okay. They did use cutouts, but not out of like smartness, just out of like typical mob tactics. Okay. Um, and when I said there's like that Russia has leverage over Trump, I don't even mean election stuff. This predates election. Um, we know that a lot of his shady money laundering towers were financed by Russian money. Um, this is an old scam that goes back, um, I'd say before he had presidential aspirations, but he's always wanted to be president, so maybe not. But it goes back decades, certainly. Um, and there's a long-standing relationship there where Trump has financed uh, things that wouldn't have financed. I hate to use that word because really it is a lot of his buildings have been straight up money laundering um, projects, vehicles. Um, and without that Russian money and other, you know, oligarchs as well, um, outside of Russia as well, uh, he wouldn't have those big shiny towers with his name on it. Um, so that's that's one thing. But yes, I think the election stuff applies too. And it does, I almost find it sort of a comforting thing to think that like, oh, it's just like Manafort and the lower people, not lower people, Manafort, it's like the, the campaign right. manager. Um, but that's not how Trump operates. Trump is the center 
of every hub that he's involved in. He's the one who, who knows what's going on. And yes, he has his little fiefdoms. He'll send out Flynn to do one thing. He'll send Manafort to do another. Um, he'll send out like all, like they're not always operating coherently and the left hands always know what the right hand is doing, but they're reporting back to Trump. And Trump is the one who is on board with these schemes. He may not know the details, certainly. He may not want to, but the overall scheme, yes, he knows. And that's important for him to know because otherwise you couldn't actually accomplish what they're trying to do. And also look at what he said during the election. Uh, Russia, if you're listening, go ahead and release the emails. Yeah, he knew what he was saying. Yeah, and I should point out that certainly on the 45th, I know you've, you've looked at this an awful lot. So this is, I would say, definitely an area of expertise. You've delved into this to, to, to quite an extent. And I think a lot of people probably aren't aware of sort of the sort of the, the history, I guess you could say, the financial history of the Trump empire, so to speak, and uh, some of the financing things where some of them aren't just shady, but seem to be downright uh, illegal, as you pointed out, money laundering and so forth, and uh, which is why perhaps he's so uh, against the 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 Mueller investigation yeah. because he knows there's he so can't much survive. yeah so uh, that uh, we will we will see what happens in the investigation but certainly I would encourage listeners that if you want to hear a lot more analysis of this uh, the 45th is a great place to go for that because you you will do just a, a great job of really delving into to some of this stuff which I think sometimes I feel like is is underreported in some in some outlets. It's 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 not even underreported. So obviously, there's like a tsunami of coverage, but there is a lack of uh, sort of higher level coherency there in the reporting. Go. Yeah, um, I do have graphs as well, if, if it's because it's really damn hard to follow on podcast form or even written form. But just to see the sheer magnitude of it really helps to see it visually laid out and to see all the connections. Because we're yes, you hear about like the June 9th meeting, the NRA meeting, um, the Goldstone like like stuff like. Okay, you hear all these separate things. And then when you see it laid out to see like, okay, you've got like 10 separate invitations for Putin and Trump to meet over the course of like a year and a half. You've got actual meetings between Russians and uh, high level Trump people, like on at least eight different occasions. Um, it's, it's significant and ongoing. And when you look at the whole, you're like, okay, the idea that this is like a coincidence, they, it stops seeming like a reasonable position. And yet that is currently a position that's being said with a straight face in our political world. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's some disturbing stuff. And yes, yeah, some, when you, when you start to connect a lot of these dots, it certainly would give, I think any reasonable person, uh, a certain amount of pause for sure. And I think that's part of the, what, why it stays, uh, it's harder to acknowledge because it's, yes, it's complex, but it's also not that subtle. Um, and it seems almost too obvious and like, well, no way. The obvious solution can't be right here because that's just that that's too obvious. Um, and they're counting on that. Yeah. Good point. All right. Well, it is time for what we're reading, where we sort of step back from all this sort of crazy news cycle stuff and talk about things that are, you know, a little more in-depth or thoughtful, things that we may be reading, listening to, watching, what have you. So, uh, Susan, do you want to you start off? Is there anything you've been uh, listening to, reading, watching that you'd like to recommend to listeners? Well, in terms of long-form reading, my past couple of days have been taken up by the non-sci-ed decision, which came out on Thursday. Um, that was for the Anansiad case, obviously first covered in Serial, which uh, Robbie, my co-host on the 45th, um, and Colin Miller, uh, law professor in South Carolina, covered on our first podcast, uh, Undisclosed. And we've been waiting for nine months now for the Maryland court of special appeals to issue its decision. Um, and they finally did. And it was a very, very long one. Um, it also uh, upheld the 
trial court's uh, decision to order an, a new trial for Anon. Um, so it, it takes a while to read. It's definitely a lot longer than most opinions are, which are already pretty lengthy. Um, but it covers a lot of interesting uh, legal grounds, as well as reaches the conclusion that, yes, uh, Anon's first attorney was ineffective. And yes, a new trial should be forthcoming. So we'll see where that goes. Um, in terms of podcast, I have I'm only just started, so I don't know how if I'm allowed to make recommendations. No, but go ahead, please, absolutely. <laughs> but fire away. Uh, the, the new season of Missing and Murdered, uh, Finding Cleo, is so far absolutely wonderful, and I've only heard amazing things about it. Um, and it's just been dropped as last episode. All right, and we will have. Both of those in the show notes, links to that for those for folks who are interested. You definitely check that out, I would say. Uh, my recommendation this week is also going to be a podcast, not exactly a politics podcast per se, but it's a podcast called Philosophize This by a guy named Stephen West. Um, I, he's sort of like the Dan Carlin of philosophy, I think. And so if you like Dan Carlin's sort of approach to things, I think you really like it. Um, I recently caught his series. It's a five-part series on the Frankfurt School. And this is sort of political. They were sort of a neo-Marxist uh, critique of capitalism, some fascinating stuff. Now, I'm not a Marxist or a neo-Marxist, but I certainly have some a great deal of sympathy with their critique of capitalism. And now when you hear German philosophy, you might think, oh my God, but Stephen West makes this stuff incredibly approachable and interesting. And it's just, it's just great stuff. Fascinating food for thought. I would highly uh, recommend it. It's a podcast that I not only listen to, but support on Patreon. It's well worth it. And so I would definitely recommend Philosophize This to folks. Are you a fan of The Good Place? Of what? Sorry? The Good Place? The Good Place? Do you mean the... Yeah, the uh, TV uh, show. Oh, well, heck yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I love... No, I don't give me any spoilers because I haven't actually... I've only seen, believe it or not, the first season. I'm waiting for the second season to come right, out on, uh, on Hulu. But yeah, I, uh, I am a huge, huge fan of that. So uh, you've, done, you've done more to kind of whet my appetite now, I think, so... <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And Susan, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you on. Thank you. And it was uh, great having you on our show. Um, if you want to listen to um, us, you can find us at 45th Pod um, on Twitter or Facebook. And I'm sure if you Google it, you can find it. I cannot actually recall our URL at this exact moment. Um, but yeah, check us out. Yeah, And we certainly will have a link to that, to the 45th in the show notes as well. And thanks everyone for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. You know, listener support is what keeps the show going. We truly do appreciate it. So if you'd like to help us out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link, or you can just go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll find there. Subscribing also helps, as does sharing episodes. Just click on that little share symbol. That would be great. And leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. And if you got a question, comment, whatever, correction, want to yell at us, mail at politicsguys.com and there's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.